this is our part two of our Olympics Tokyo 2020, actual 2021 podcast. Man, it's been crazy. Like, honestly, it's been the most frustrating experience of probably perhaps my life as a sports fan, wanting to watch certain things and just having no idea when it's coming on. Like, what's with the schedule? Like, there's no schedule of events. Yeah. There's no, like, it's just no clarity. Like, I turn it on one minute, I'm watching, you know, beach volleyball. Next minute, I'm watching diving. Yeah. You know, and then it's, Badman, it's like it's like overload you know i need consistency it's like a mixed bag of things you'll get you don't know what you're getting each night but the frustrating thing for me is when you go to look up okay what's what's going to be shown today you'll get spoilers because a lot of the stuff happens in the middle of the night you wake up if you get on any sports outlet you got espn you got sports illustrated yes they still exist but in instagram format house of highlights bleacher report you're gonna see on your timeline if you're on instagram or twitter or google so and so has one gold medal so it's like ah, i didn't want to right. find out I that Simone, yeah i, want, yeah, I, wanted, I wanted to watch to this live it. and it's you can't it's watch all sport. about live you can't watch sports at least i can't um record it because no, no no it's not the same someone's gonna spoil it for me and if i'm lucky enough to get to the point where i can sit down and watch it and prime time, then that's amazing. But that'll happen maybe one out of 10 times. So a lot of waking up to spoilers or trying my best not to get on my phone all day so I could pretend like I'm watching it live at night. Pretend, pretend like you're watching it live. Right. Yeah. And oh my God, man, it, it, it's it's so frustrating because there's like, what, three, four different channels uh, that are like Olympics networks or whatever it's like peacock nbc sports network yeah and and it's just it's tough it's been a little frustrating um but then it's also been eye-opening too because man like japan is literally on the other side of the world right you think that oh okay you just go west like stones throw west past hawaii Mm -hmm. and you're there but no no not at all it's like when we are doing things here in the states you know wherever we are yeah it's like a whole nother day there it's like a the whole day is past you know what i mean like we're in yesterday it's crazy (laughs) it's so weird the one nice thing is like at night during the prime time they'll mix in some actual live events that are happening the next morning in japan so like you could have watched like street skateboarding i was watching that live um, which is going on in the morning in Japan the day after, and I'm watching it live at 8 p.m. at night. So yeah, that was always interesting. Um, I never quite understood what Land of the Rising Sun meant ooh. until now. There you go. Good job, Japan. It's been great, though. It's been really, Tokyo's been awesome. They pulled it off. A lot of pressure. Obviously, pandemic's going on, and yeah. it's been fun to watch. But this, so this is our part two of our Olympic set of podcasts. Today, we're going to talk more about team dynamics. We're going to talk about some of the uh, competitive great athletes that we've seen here at the, these Olympics. Um, and we're going to talk about all the barriers that have been broken at these Olympics as well, and then kind of give our takeaways as to kind of our favorite moments of the Olympics. And I don't know, are we going to talk a little bit about NBA free agency? Why not? Yeah, we might dabble on that as well. A moment Uh, of mindfulness. Yep. All right. So let's go ahead and uh, let's hear the music. Let's uh, let's start with probably the most the, the, 
the most recent thing that happened. I, this is actually one of the events I actually got to stay up and watch was the U.S. men's basketball team played the gold medal match and I was lucky enough to happen at 7.30 p.m. here out the West Coast mm-hmm. so I could watch it live against uh, And I missed it. You know why? Because I had been so disoriented, you know, all this whole time. I was expecting it to be literally like coming on in the middle of the night, you know, so I was kind of just ready to stay up a little bit late and then all of a sudden I find out at, <laughs> at like 10 o'clock, 10.30, it was over. I was like, what? talking about got to see kd drop 29 points so he has had three consecutive gold medal matches at the olympics 30 30 and 29 and he's the most leading scorer the leading scorer in a men's olympic basketball history for team usa i'm not sure about for other countries second player that earned three gold medals in basketball oh is that Um, let me guess carmelo that's the one that's right he was the first he also passed carmelo uh, as all-time leading scorer. So this, it, we were talking about a little bit of this and we had, I think maybe a conversation last podcast and also off air where some people were nervous about this team. A lot of people were. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, one of the biggest reasons why was, you know, the, their performance, as you recall, uh, in the uh, preliminary competition, you know, uh, before they even got to Tokyo, uh, they had some exhibition games actually here in the States and they got beat. In fact, they got beat by Australia as one of the teams, you know, who they eventually had to play uh, in the semifinal round. And, uh, you know, um, I, the one of those games got beat pretty bad, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, so that's just not something that we're, we're used to seeing, right, with, with, with uh, you know, the Olympic basketball team, particularly since mm-hmm. we started uh, inviting the professionals, the American professional players back in 92, yeah. of course, the dream team just had not seen anything other though there, there was like one scenario. What was it? What was that? What was that one year where we didn't bring home the gold? It was that one off year, 20, 2004, something like that. Yeah. I mean, so ultimately we're used to just supreme dominance. I mean, dominance on a level you know, really you don't often see where it's like not just, you know, undefeated throughout through the tournament, but wide margin, you know, uh, no one even close. And um, where, you know, I I, I don't know for those of you who have seen uh, the Dream Team documentary um, that you can check out actually on Netflix, like, man, those those players like the the Michael Jordans, the Magic Johnsons, the Larry Birds, like, when they went over there, this is 1992. They were they were received like the reception that they had were like, you know, they were like superheroes. Um, like they literally had magical like you know superpowers, special powers, and in the same way that they would sort of uh, host an American dignitary, right, like a president a you know high level uh, official really incredible um and 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 obviously that type of sort of presence that they had that influence that popularity um boy band level popularity right like they took that to the court and and they they showed off almost like you know Harlem Globetrotters right back in the day they were just like wow people were literally in awe the Olympics prior 88 I think that's when they had college kids take over and they they end up we end up getting bronze that year so they come back mm. with the dream team and ever since then 
and you, you mentioned earlier, we've won gold with the exception of 2004. We got bronze, and that was led by, I think, Tim Duncan and Allen Iverson, but in a young LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, Dwayne Wade, Amari Stoudemire. So a lot of younger guys. I, I, I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know how – I think LeBron was probably just a few years in the league at that time. And then it, that sets the stage for, I think, the following year. I think they called that the – what was it? The Redeem Team in 2008 mm-hmm. led by Kobe Bryant mm-hmm. and LeBron, but it was really Kobe who kind of, kind of was the leader of that team and uh, reclaimed our rightful spot as gold medalists. Absolutely. And then it's uh, has been gold medal finish ever since. And obviously in the FIBA world cup or world championships, it's, it's been a different story at times um, when we don't necessarily send our best players, but everyone can tell that the world's catching up when it comes to basketball. Just look at the NBA. Look at the league MVP. Look at probably the 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 number one rising star. That, or the look at the last three MVPs: Giannis, Giannis, Joker, yeah. uh, Doncic. Mm-hmm. What would you say? Three of the top. It's argue three of the top five players in the NBA are are not U.S. born. That's very arguable. <laughs> I say three of the top ten um, for sure. Yeah, three of the top ten. Um, would be in that conversation. So it's incredible. All right. So you say you're saying Joker is not the top five. You would Absolutely put Doncic in the top five. Yeah. Uh, I would put all three of those players in the top ten, but I would not put all those three, three players in the in the top five. Okay. Um, Fair enough. LeBron's still in my top five for sure, if yeah. not number one. Um, I had LeBron and KD. Would Steph, be, were the other two? Steps in there. Steps in there. Uh, Giannis is in that conversation. It's funny because I was looking. I don't. Steph has never competed in the Olympics, which I always find fascinating. That is fascinating. I, that that's. Uh, now I will say this. So when he first started his career, he, there were a lot of injuries. Right, those first couple of years, his sort of longevity was in question, and so he probably I could have I could have understood why he would have sat out of like 2012 for instance, because I think, you know, that was during that period of time. But yeah, 2016, hard to know, you know, kind of what happened there. But yeah, no, I, I agree. And and I think it's with these Olympics, it's usually like they get you when you're younger and you're part of the select teams and you work your way up. So I feel like if you're not in that pipeline early on, you don't end up playing. But actually, I think this year we had some people like Dame Lillard, who had who'd never been I think been on the Olympic team before he joined. Yeah. And quite frankly, didn't have the best Olympics, but uh, the international game is different, and, and I think the competition is—it's a—that's a high level of competition, a lot higher now in 2020 than it was in 1992. That's for sure. Yeah. So we had some forces we had to face. Like you said before, they lost two exhibition games, Nigeria and then Australia, and then we're like, ah, oh, their exhibition, they'll be able to turn it on. Then they lose the opening game that mattered to France, and it pretty much had to be—we're in must-win mode ever since then, and that's exactly what they did. Yeah. on their way to winning it they actually had to face arguably probably the toughest stretch of opponents that any uh, olympic teams face they had to play spain mm-hmm. the number two ranked team took them out had to play australia who i think probably was the second best team in this tournament and then had to avenge the loss fittingly avenge the loss of france in the gold medal match um, narrowly there was a nicholas batum block of luca and the other semifinal that prevented serbia from making it to the the gold medal match um, which that would have been fun to see kind of Luca go against all these uh, 
other NBA guys. Yeah, it would um, have been. And I think he would have given them a run for for their money, you know, just simply based on you know who he is. Um Luca, speaking of you know, team dynamics, I mean, he's one of these guys that I think, you know, he's just so special because he's a person that just even beyond his own skill set he can have a dramatic influence on the game like even beyond his own shooting ability right and dribbling ability and just ability to space the floor or whatever by virtue not just of his great passing ability and you know willingness to to give up the ball willingness to get guys the you know the ball on time on target but it's also this kind of tenacity that he plays with this confidence this this will to win that is so infectious. It, it really does elevate not just the physical play and the sort of, you know, shot making ability, so to speak, of his, the other players on his team, but it, it also elevates them mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you know, over the course of the grind of the season and certainly a playoff run. And when you have people like that, you know, in the military, you know, we used to use this term force multiplier. That's what it is. It's a guy that, you know, you call these once in a generation guys, you know, different, you hear a lot of different terms, but LeBron, you know, obviously is sort of the standard, but difference makers, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so guys like that, they, they can go beyond, they can, they can take something beyond just like the talent that they have around them and they can create something special. And in, in, in a tournament, the great thing about a tournament is one and done, anything can happen. Mm -hmm. Anything can happen. And that's, I most misspoke earlier. Um, Luca is Slovenian, so he represents Slovenia. Of course, yeah. He's actually 17 and one playing with the Slovenian national team and brought them all the way to the semifinals, one point away from making the gold medal game and um narrow and then losing to unfortunately losing to australia in the bronze medal match but they're a FIBA basketball ranked 16th team um they don't really have any other nba guys besides goran Dragic, who's kind of on the other side of his peak mm -hmm. um so he yeah he single-handedly kind of rose the level of that team and they were one of the most exciting teams and they were narrowly missed uh meddling um serbia is actually more well well established team they won the FIBA world cup in 2002 there that's where nikola jokic or joker represents them and they have several other nba guys but no, it, it, it's absolutely incredible what he's doing because you never heard of this team before i mean they they you know were basically like the rudy you know of this olympics a team that just had no international prominence but they did have one guy right that like i said was a difference maker that could elevate everyone else and make a deep run, yeah. you know, be a legitimate threat. This is the concern for the U.S. is that obviously they have the best players, but are do they have the best team? Do they play together? Do they want it as much as these other teams? Are they as cohesive as the uh, these other teams? Because these are a bunch of superstars kind of put together within a month or two month span um, with not a lot of practicing. And then you have to go out there and play against these countries where teams like Australia, who some of these kids have been playing together with each other since they were in grade school representing their country, which is a lot different than, than what the U.S. program is. So Evan Fournier, who just signed a big contract with the New York Knicks, um, player of France. Yes. He said, quote unquote, after they beat USA in the opening round, 
they are better individually, but they can be beaten as a team. So that's kind of was the blueprint is play good, cohesive basketball and you can beat these guys. And what I, when I was watching the games um, led by coach Popovich for team USA, the difference for me was how they kind of, and they did this and maybe since they're elite players, they can't afford to do this. They flipped the switch and that switch came on defense when they decided to turn up the intensity and hustle hard and play good team defense there no one was going to beat them and you you add kd just being able to be a walking bucket and go off anytime he wants that's a tough team to beat regardless of how cohesive they are on the on the offensive side of the ball because dame Luller was struggling um shooting the ball and they didn't really have a a lot of uh, other guys get going i think drew holiday was probably their second best player in the tournament and partially primarily due to his defense and they didn't have their biggest guy. The guy that guarded uh, Rudy Gobert was Kevin Durant on defense. So this is a team that, that put in the effort. They were able to flip the switch and they came out as a gold medal, gold medalists. They sure did, man. Um, And uh, you know, I, I, it's a different way to win, right? It's not as spectacular, right? I mean, one of the things about for example, the dream team, you know, which we always kind of talk, talk about, and, you know, always comes up was so many different highlights. I mean, just amazing feats, you know, they were putting on a show and right. They, and they, and they were kind of enabled to do that because at a certain point, you know, even the other teams conceded, right? Like it wasn't even fair. There, there are stories about players on other teams during the game taking photos, asking for autographs, you know, things of that nature. Like they were just in awe. So they really laid down for these guys um, and, and just, uh, you know, let them kind of put on a show, you know, it was spectacular. Um, but what's interesting about that is like, that's great. That's cool and everything. It's really not the American way. I mean, you know, you almost sort of like look at, you know, this victory in some ways as just as sweet, if not sweeter, just because, you know, they, they won in convincing fashion, um, but they did it as a team, right? And they, and they did it as, you know, a team that had to, you know, to sort of, you know, probably come outside of themselves, right? Those, those guys are, are not necessarily mostly known for their defensive prowess. You know, most of those guys are scorers, you know, they're, they're the number one scorers on their teams, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're really known for their right, really ability to, make a difference with playmaking, right? And stuff like that. And being the, the go-to guy, you know, to, to, to take that, that big shot. Whereas in this tournament, it had, they had to really change, you know, they had to, to, to become something different in order to win, right? They had to win together and there's no kind of better model of winning together and doing it as a team than the defensive end of a yeah. basketball game. And that's why if you watched, I watched the closing, who was the closing group? I was always interested in that. And Zach Levine was actually out there because he was hustling on defense. So Zach Levine, I saw Zach Levine and Bam, Draymond, Katie, and Drew was the closing, were the closing lineup in the, at least the gold medal match. No Dame, mm-hmm. no D book and partially right. due to the, to the, uh, the value of defense over offense. And and I think Levine's stock definitely rose for me, but I think this goes all back to not only the individuals, but 
who was coaching that team, Greg Popovich. And we talked about this before in the Coaches Create Champions podcast. Uh, we highlighted Popovich's techniques because he's very well known for taking individual, having individuals on this team from all over the globe and having them connect um, and become brothers and want to win for more, have these individuals from everywhere come together for a common goal, not only to win, but to, to win for each other, to win, win for their, their countries and, and, and to bond over different things. Like he would have people together um, and, and they would watch uh, documentaries about Martin Luther King. And then he would go around and have all his players comment on that and, and discuss those things. And those types of things lead, lead to creating stronger bonds. And undoubtedly, I'm sure he did those types of things um, with Team USA. And they're off in Japan and Tokyo for a, a full month and uh, disconnected from all their friends and family because of COVID and, and in a different country and different side of the globe. And they started off slow and we're getting a lot of hate on social media, but they stuck together and they ended up winning the gold medal and probably had a lot of strategies in there to uh, kind of create brotherhoods during that short time. And I'll, I'll be interested to see which, if any of these guys from these teams kind of planted seeds in, in the future to play together. I'm sorry. Because, uh, you know, in the past, that past that's happened mm -hmm. and you see a lot of these young guys sometimes just take off after they play in the Olympics because they learn like LeBron and Dwayne Wade, after they played with Kobe, they took off um, in 2008. In 2008. Yeah. Exactly. And the rest is history. Absolutely. So I could imagine someone like, I mean, we already saw the, the research or the uh, emergence of D book um, and Middleton and, and drew these past playoffs, but someone like Levine, taking it, taking his game to the next level um, after, after watching and witnessing kind of what KD does. No, I mean, that's, you're right, man. Because I mean, how often do people get an opportunity to really like actually play together if they're not on the same team and they didn't like make the all-star team, you know, or something like that. And even with the all-star thing, I mean, it's like a couple of days, you know, you get to kind of hang out and play, you know, shoot around. This is like, you're actually together for a whole month. It's almost like, you know, back in AAU, you know, back in like the, you know, the days and in, in this tournament days where it's like, you're kind of like just really camping out together. You have nowhere else to go. You, know, you sort of have to like bond and you have this whole like tournament, right? And tournaments are such a, I mean, it's going to be a very different experience in like the regular season, which is just a long taxing grind. And these aren't best. This is like, no, 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 no. Right. This is like one and done. So it's like every game is like super important. And like you're just like a roller coaster of emotions. Uh, everything's happening so fast, and you know that's that's definitely it's almost like basic training. You know? It's like yeah. you you know you have to bond quickly. Yeah, and I think that's what it comes down to. We're U.S. is going to have the most talent. It's a matter of whether or not they can catch up and bond as quickly as all these other countries who, because of years of playing together um, in their home countries have already have had years to bond and we, and we have to catch up to that. And we were able to do that within that month and take the gold medal. So that was fun to see. Um, it also, we, I guess, touch on the fact that basketball it's refed a little bit differently. And I actually like the way it's ref in, in FIBA. There's not as much ticky tack foul. So mm -hmm. a lot of our star players our offensive guys, they were struggling to get going on the offensive side because they weren't getting all those calls, but they made the adjustments. They showed mental fitness and resilience. We're able to eventually uh, figure it out and then, Get the W. Mm -hmm. That's that's why they're pros. You know, pros presumably they they have that ability to, you know, be great when greatness is needed. You know, um, yeah. 
so yeah it's amazing pressure rose people are already saying writing off popovich writing off kd why are you having javel mcgee and, and Keldon johnson on your team when you have all these other people and, and it worked out so settle down guys all right so coming from one competitively great unit um and individuals to the next topic of this podcast some of the competitively great athletes that we see at these olympics every four years this year i think let's let's name a few of the ones that that we kind of personally enjoyed watching for me i think it would have to be for swimming there was a couple that stand out katie ledecky mm, oh yeah third olympics so she was a five-time gold medalist entering the olympics she won two more golds and two more silvers so she's has the most medals in olympic women's olympic swimming history so the most decorated she's already com committed to continuing to compete in the next two olympics as long as she can i love that competitive spirit for her um, and she faced some heat this olympics because she was beaten in a couple races by the a younger australian swimmer um, but showed some resolve and still ended up winning winning two of her races so indeed she's a legend absolutely yeah she's she's yeah permanently enshrined you know, as just like, you know, sort of the right now, probably the greatest female swimmer of all time. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, that's amazing. It's just, it's, it's really cool. Uh, it's just yeah. really cool to see. The consistency there is the most amazing thing. Indeed. Because like, I mean, I don't want to jump back into Simone Biles, but like she ended up pulling off two medals, but she's still the greatest women's gymnast of all time. But even her, she wasn't able to do back-to-back -back goals it's hard to keep that peak level of performance for four, five years in this case. Mm -hmm. um, but Katie Ledecky has been able to do it for, for three Olympics in a row. Um, Caleb Dressel on the men's side of things won five gold oh, medals. Oh man, he was a, exciting to watch. A miniature Phelps performance. He was excited. Yeah, he's just basically like the sprinter, uh, you know, whereas maybe Phelps like middle distance or something. This guy's like, you know, the uh, sort of Carl Lewis of uh, oh, yeah. uh, the pool. Watched him chase down and being in a couple of those relays, that was fun to watch. Yeah, no, I, I mean, he was just so amazingly fat. Like, you know, one thing that always impressed me about Bolt by comparison to other great sprinters was his dominance, you know, and just clear, you know, this sheer like athletic dominance on display in such a short space of time. Right? It's like a 100 meters, that's it, right? And he's like clearly so much better. Yeah. Back in the day, it was always going to be close to a photo finish. Like you expected that, right? It was yeah. going to be late. And, and you expect that in the pool as well, when you're just going like from one side to the other, right? No, sir. Like this guy was so dominant. Like he was just like, he looked like had a propeller or motor or something. I like, I like the comparison with, with Usain because they both kind of looked the part as well. Like you can, if you saw... Usain lineup with all the other 100 meter sprinters. He, he just he looks different. He's taller. He's longer. Yeah, that made yeah. that gave him an advantage because he was able to have, still has that quick twitch, but then he had the stride length to beat everyone else. And then Caleb Dressel in the pool, there you go. a little bit more chiseled than most swimmers, yeah. and those tattoos, that were yeah, like the, the exactly. eagle and the bear and the whatever was on his sleeve that had a good look to him so you can tell in the determination on just kind of the look of some of these these athletes it's kind of interesting when they look the part yeah it's like the swagger yeah you know it's a confidence um the confidence yeah and like you know that they're 
like they they're coming to put on a show mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah you're not gonna like um, usain bolt isn't gonna hit the lightning bolt pose before yeah. a race unless he's confident in his abilities and, and caleb dressel is not going to get the full american style tat sleeve before the olympics unless he's confident in his abilities yeah. so uh, I, lo- I like watching the swimming and then probably my favorite is the track and field and indeed i think the the number one now we have the most decorated track and field athlete in the history of Olympics, Allison Felix. She just passed OG. the OG um, Carl Lewis mm-hmm. for most medals in track and field. So she has 11 medals across five Olympics. This is the first Olympics she's competed in where she's a mother. And she won bronze in the 400 meter and gold in the four by 400 meter relay. You can do anything. And she, this is, this is something we should touch on because she parted ways with Nike, her longtime sponsor, largely over a dispute because of her pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Isn't that something? What the hell are you doing, Nike? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's just that, that when you have that determination, um, you have the will, you can do anything. You know, that's what it is. That was a narrative that women in this country, so many women um, for so long, you know, had to deal with is like, you can't have a family, you can't go there. I know athletes, especially. And we, I mean, we've talked about this on previous podcasts, like we really had to go through this whole narrative, man, if you, if you, if you, if you want to get pregnant, you, that's it, like career's over. And it's amazing, right, to have like, like just totally shut the door on that conversation now with a, a person who was a high low level athlete deciding I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to forego my sponsorship, I'm going to have my family, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to become a legendary Olympic athlete, again, who also becomes the GOAT, right? Like the greatest, one of the greatest Olympians of all time, right? I mean, that's that's just a great story you can't write that any better right you can't make that up obviously if you're if you're pregnant you may have to sit out half a season because you have to give birth and or you're visibly pregnant for a couple months but let's give up the the myth that you can't continue to compete at a high level if you plan on having kids as as a mom as a woman in this in this world because we got gold medalists we got silver medals we got medalists from all over the place that, that are mothers that are either going to be mothers in the future or have been, or are, have had already had their pregnancy. Just look no further than the Jamaican women. Yeah. I mean, look, Alex Morgan won bronze for the U S women's uh, soccer team. She's a mom. We, we, we've said it before. We're going to say it again. It's not all about the physical body, right. And the limitations of the physical body. In fact, it, it is probably mostly a mental game. Right? It's probably mostly about your will and what you just, you set your mind to do. Your body will follow. That's what this is proving. Um, and it's really, really just incredible. And speaking of track and athletes that, that really made an impression on us, man, I can't get over um, the Sydney McLaughlin. Um, I just can't get over it because, you know, I really do feel like in many ways, like she kind of like salvaged my impression of you know um sort of american 
Olympic track um, in terms of like our future, right? I mean, Allison Felix, she represents sort of like, you know, among the greatest that we've had, but she's, she's, you know, becoming an OG, right? She's kind of at the tail end of her career. I was really looking at like our future, right? Like what is the next four years, next eight years? You know, we're, we're gonna host uh, the 2028 Olympics right here in Los Angeles, right? I'm looking ahead and I'm thinking to myself, man, like who can I look at and say, who, they're, they're gonna carry the mantle. And we talked about Shakari Richardson. I was so disappointed by what happened with that situation because I saw her as our future. I mean, you know, Americans, ever since this whole you know, Usain Bolt era, man, like we really struggled in sprinting, especially. We really struggled in, in track. Um, you know, and, and, and track is near and dear to my heart, you know, cause I, I, I ran in, in high school and, um, something I've always really loved. And so when I saw Shikari, man, I was like, this is, this is a one, right? This is a one. And then it didn't work out. So I was like, wow, like, are we just going to get completely obliterated in, in track, <laughs> track events? Um, and, you know, to see her out there, like setting world records, you know, um, and just being like, in my eyes, a really great amb ambassador for young women, uh, an example for young women, you know, she's just, you know, so poised, um, you know, she's really uh, a person that I, I look at and I realize, you know, this is someone that I, you know, I could imagine like my, my daughter, you know, I would want her to emulate, you know, just, she's just a serious, person, you know, she's so kind of seems wise beyond her years, you know, just seems like someone that has like so much more experience than she really, you know, does have. Definitely extremely strong in her faith. Strong in her faith. Um, almost like, you know, Steph, you know, the way I look at Steph Curry, uh, you know, in, in terms of just being a, a, a great role model and someone that really exudes greatness, the highest level, we like basically set two world records in the same week, like just back to, you know what I mean? It's like amazing. And um, it's just really cool to see that, man. Um, you know, women you know, coming forward and just sort of, you know, being the torch bearers for this country, you know, young women coming up, it's just really cool. Yeah. And it's great because she was on the, she was on the four by 400 uh, meter relay team with Allison Felix, absolutely. Uh, that won gold mm -hmm. along with Delilah Muhammad, who was won silver in the 400 meter Another hurdles, one. To silver, silver to Sydney's gold. She also broke the world record, but it just so happens that Sydney McLaughlin broke it better than she did in the same race. Mm -hmm. So she got silver and she was on that relay team as well. So definitely a, a promising future for our, um, kind of, I guess, short to mid distant runners. We don't quite have those 100 meter sprinters right now shikari she'll be back no doubt mm -hmm. um it's it's inspiring to watch watch these athletes and um with all the pressure that as society or with all the uh, i guess with the different expectations that some people in society put on on women with regards to, to having a family it's it's maybe even more pressure for them um to succeed and it it's 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 exciting to watch high level uh, athletes compete and, and do great at young ages. Oh yeah, man! You know it was also pretty cool um, to to watch with these uh, the way they had these like these watch parties, um, you know, planned out all across the country and different athletes in there, not just their families. Like you know, we we've seen this before, like the drafts, right? 
um, they'll, you know, be live in, you know, one of the, uh, one of the players, families, like living room or whatever, and you'll get to see them you know, excited and all that. But this was different, right? I mean, these were like, it was like the whole community, right? I mean, it was like hundreds of people in some cases in like an auditorium or somewhere. Um, yeah. I've never seen anything like that. I mean, it was incredible because you think about it like, yeah, sure. I mean, it would be great. Like I think about when I grew up, right? In, you know, in, in and around like the Baltimore area, like it would have been great to, to have imagined like an athlete from like, you know, our town going to the Olympics. Um, but the idea that like, it would be sort of like a, an event like this is our weekend event. We're going to go to the, the Coliseum. You know, we're going to go to the arena. And we're going to pack ourselves in there. We're going to like watch this player, you know, on you know the big the big screen and just like a like we're watching a movie, going to the movie theater, right? We're going to that's that's something different, right? That's really freaking cool. Like that's really cool. Like to to have an entire community showing that level of support on international TV, you know. Um, that's pretty awesome. I've just, th those have been very heartwarming. You, you get to really see just, it was, here's the thing, man. It wasn't just people sitting around just spectating or whatever, like they were so excited, right? When they saw, you know, whoever it was like getting their, their gold medal across that finish line, whatever, even if they didn't medal, right? In some cases it's like, they were so excited, so excited um you know to to just cheer that person on and it just it clearly brought so much joy to the community so much pride right to the community and um that's been exciting to watch as well absolutely and i just a shout out to my alma mater indiana university they have 13 medals and counting at this point i'm trying to match the 16 they produced back in uh 2016 so wow it's 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 fun i think the uh, the olympics for me, it's, I'm not just, obviously I'm biased towards the United States and towards any athlete that trained at IU, but I'm out there rooting for like, Armin and I both know we, we were attracted to greatness on the field of play. So I was all like fascinated in watching the Jamaican women in the 100 meters sweep that and this, the Elaine Thomas hurrah, who won her second in a row gold medal and the 100 meters also took the 200 meters man and and with some swag as well and oh yeah and and then she so she so they've won four 100 meters in a row now in the olympics over the span of the last 16 years and that includes with um shelly ann frazier who took silver this year i think silver four years ago as well and she's a mother um and they obviously won the four by 100 relay dominated it um but that that team the Jamaican track and field team in general is just fun to watch. And I like that rivalry with the United States because, you know, we love, we love our rivalries. So it's, it's fun to watch that back and forth um, as well. So I'm not just out there rooting for any, any individual who's repping the United States. I'm out there looking for good stories, looking for, um, I loved watching the the high jump actually in the, the mm -hmm. player from Qatar in Italy, they ended up, they could have went into a, uh, a jump off, but they decided to shake it out and split the gold. So they each get a gold medal and the reactions that both of them had, how excited they were. Cause they both, they oh, had that's cool. amazing jumps. Yeah. Um, and they decided to split it 
And why not? Like, unless you're like, an, I mean, granted MJ or Kobe probably not making the decision to split it. They're probably going to go to a jump off. <laughs> right. Yeah. Almost certainly. But at the end of the day, you're still getting the gold medal. Yeah. Why not share it with someone that you respect? You're right. A competitor. Had, had, had that ever happened before in Olympic history? I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, I never heard but of it. That's cool. That's crazy. I, it was funny because they gave them the option to have a jump off and you could, they, it was on camera and I was watching it live at the time because it was happening during the day in Japan. I was watching it at night and you could see the moment they looked at each other and like nodded their head, like they were going to split it. And the Italian guy actually jumped into the arms of the, the guy from guitar and they just started hugging each other and celebrating. And then they went off and grabbed their, their fl the flags of their respective countries and just kind of just enjoyed the fact that they were world champion or they were Olympic champions, gold medalists in their sport. And it didn't matter that it was a tie. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I have no idea, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if like the Italian press the Qatari press, if they had a mostly positive response to all that. I have a feeling, just a strange feeling that if that happened with a U.S. athlete, that it would have been a little bit different. <laughs> Against like a U.S. Yeah, like a you know Chinese I mean? athlete or a Russian. Uh, yeah, ROC. I feel like it would have been a different reception. You know, there would might have been some negative commentary yeah. around that. The U.S. is different well, in that way. Um, yeah, you're never. Yeah, I mean, we saw that with the Simone Biles issue. And I'll, I'll bring. Let's bring it back to Simone real quick because guess what? We she came back and what she do? She she still had the twisties through the tournament, so she couldn't do any of the events that required her to twist several times in the air. But she couldn't. She could do the beam because she could modify her her dismount off the beam, so she didn't do a specific twist. In that modification, she capped her score at a lower lower level so she ended up doing it pretty much flawlessly and took up on bronze which is she got a bronze four years ago in the beam so she came back and showed that she's still one of the greatest by securing a bronze despite still mm -hmm. dealing with the twisties which by all means is a physical and mental issue going on and that shows a lot of resilience that shows mental fitness because the pressure was cranked up to a million after she she dropped out of the all around well for sure um but you know <sighs> You actually bring up a good point. I just want to touch on really quickly the twisties, as you as you you called it. Um, you know, I, I think one thing that does become a, a bit challenging for for people, and by people in this instance, I'm I'm really referring to like, you know, the the American fan base, you know, and and you know the and perhaps American media representing that fan base, right? Is that like, you know, the twisties clearly like a vernacular term. Probably, you know, I'm, I'm I'm sure it's widely used. I know it obviously it's widely used among gymnasts. I don't know, you know, other uh, sports where they do, you know, there's a lot of that sort of. Yeah, I wonder like if like diving. diving, like those kind of sports, if they also have that that type of terminology. But nevertheless, like it's not necessarily described in like you know the medical literature, and uh, I'm not I'm not sure to what extent it's been described in the sports like psych ecology literature um but when when you're kind of putting stuff out there and it seems like medical or you know psychological or you know something like that something in, empirical something objective i think it, it is tough for people to wrap their mind around when you know the reality is there are medical conditions there are conditions issues as you as you put the use the term issues that occur that have been described right 
in the literature that people can, I think, probably understand and interpret and internalize a bit better because they've heard of these things before. And, but when you start kind of like start throwing out these terms, right, that maybe no one's ever, I've never heard the term twisties before. Yeah, right. Then I think it, it, it does turn the tide of the conversation a bit, right? Because now it's, a, it's just questions, right? It just, now there's questions, right? You get, you get, it's almost like you give people, you know, there's like this thread and you're going to keep, just want to tug on that. I'm certainly not critical. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm fully supportive of uh, obviously like anyone, not just an athlete, but anyone, you know, who needs to take a step back for the purposes of mental health recovery. But I do get a little concerned when, you know, there's, there's, there's the, the objectivity starts to wane or be questioned because I feel like objectivity is our credibility, right? Objectivity and it, it being able to, um, to show stuff empirically, right? Through, uh, you know, tests and trials, right, and, and patterns, clinical, you know, awareness and knowledge that's been based on years and years of observation, right, and we can say, like, we can make this decision, we can make this diagnosis, we can draw this conclusion based on evidence. That has to always, to me, be solid, right, that has to be something that we hold true and dear as healthcare as medical professionals. Mm -hmm. And and for me, I'm just all I'm saying is I, I'm just a little uncomfortable when we kind of open the door for speculation when having these conversations. Because that's when I think the conversation can shift, the narrative can shift, and you lose credibility. Right. Then all of a sudden pseudoscience and these you know psycho babble and all these other kind of terms come into play because we want to be able to present evidence, right? And, and, and come with evidence. Um, and so that was just, you know, for me, I know it's a bit of a sidebar. But. Yeah, I, I would imagine I would love to there, this to be explored now that there's a terminology of twisties and I'm sure it's been in the lexicon of gymnasts for years now. I would imagine like, let's get a mental health professional to really examine this. Let's get a, a health professional to really examine this along with the gymnasts to really determine out, determine, okay, kind of like a chain analysis, like, all right, you had the twisties at this point in time, what led up to this? Like, what were some of the factors that could have contributed to this? So we can better understand what's causing it. If, if there is a correlation to anything, um, is it related to stress? Most likely, is it related to lack of sleep? Is it related to poor diet or, uh, uh, or a head injury or something rant, like just kind of just breaking it down and figuring out, okay, is there like, is there a way to prevent this? Let's better understand that first and let's figure out how to prevent it. And if, and let's figure out how to fix it if, if it's something that recurs. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm hoping that that will happen. Yeah. You know, cause listen, what you just said was, was, was I, I love that. Um, I mean, that was a, a you know, a really tremendous, you know, sort of preliminary clinical analysis. And I feel like that that starts a conversation and it's a really important conversation to have and I hope we open the door on, door to that. But, you know, I, I just, I say this because um, one of the biggest challenges for us as mental health professionals and frankly, as a society, you know, 
as a national community, as well as a global community, when it comes to mental health is stigma, right? And the stigma around it and stigma, you know, is a function of so many different things to include misconceptions, to include, you know, shame and, and you know, just a lot of different things that we are working hard to resolve, right? To combat, you know, to move beyond. One of the ways that stigma can be fueled and reinforced is when you know we we sort of approach these mental these topics of mental health these themes of mental health sort of in you know code words right with you know a little bit of almost like a veil of secrecy you know where it's sort of like things aren't very clear right and it's just all these questions because that's not how how medicine really works right in in medicine we work very hard to, you know, uh, to prevent any lack of clarity, right? We work very hard to make things as kind of empirical as possible. Um, that's always kind of the goal. Not necessarily, we, we want to protect certainly the, um, the confidentiality, right, of the client, you know, in terms of the, you know, we don't, you know, people don't readily just, you know, you know tell everybody their, their quote unquote business. But when it's a public issue, like a high level athlete, you know, any side of sort of injury, any time that they would miss any opportunity, they would miss to not get a medal, right? A gold medal in an in a international competition, that's gonna become you know, public knowledge. And in that instance, is, there's usually not a lack of clarity. Like we know it's an ACL injury. Like we just know that, like we know that's what happened. Like we know that the shoulder, you know, it was torn. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, okay, that's why it happened. And then everybody can kind of move on and have their moment to sort of process it. And they say, oh, it sucks, you know, and then you can kind of like, you know, have your empathy and deal with it and move on. But it's like, if you don't really know what happened, <laughs> you know, or there's like these questions, especially when you really care about the outcome, uh, then it, 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 I think it's harder for people to sort of like move past it. Yeah. It's easier to question. So, I think at the end of the day with these athletes, it's, it's important for us. We said this in the, the first part of this Olympic series is to take a step back when you, when there's a result that you don't like that you question. Um, and before you jump to label an athlete, like soft or weak-minded or a quitter to, to really take a step back and view the, the competitor as separate from the individual. And you can certainly criticize and critique the competitor and um, the performance, but try your best to separate it from critiquing the individual because their performance isn't indicative to who they really are. Now you can make the argument that, that oh no, it, it is, and it, it's part of who they are, but it isn't truly who they are. So just because someone leaves a competition doesn't mean that they individually are a lesser than because they quit a competition you don't have all the results and at the end of the day if you take that step back all right you're bummed out some mobiles dropped out of the team all around but then guess what happened one door closes another opens soon sunisa lee ends up winning the gold all around for the united states jade carey ends up winning the gold on the floor routine for the united states this might not have happened if simone didn't drop out 
they might not have got those gold. So we have two new young women with two great stories and two gold medals that they might not have had otherwise. So embrace mm-hmm. that, take that in. You're still seeing high level competition. And, and then Simone comes back and gets her bronze. So it all kind of works out in the end. It did. It did. It, it, it did work out. Absolutely. And, and that's, it, it always is going to work out, right? The hysteria and everything around it was, was always unnecessary. But again, you know, these kind of questions do come up when things are uncertain. So what I am going to propose to you I, I, is two different perspectives. Let's see what you think about this. What if it really is no longer necessary for an athlete to disclose the specific details of their injury, regardless of what it is, right? That's perspective one. So let's just say if somebody were to have a, a knee injury, that's like an ACL. It's like what Kawhi Leonard does Exactly, now. right, exactly. <laughs> so knee injury, whatever it was, maybe all they have to say is lower leg injury. That's right? what the NHL does. That's it, and just leave it at that lower leg Mm -hmm. injury. So then in this case, it would be maybe mental health injury. I mean, who knows, right? Some term Mm -hmm. like that. And then it doesn't have to be anything more. So that's one perspective. Another perspective is perhaps this condition would be, you know, placed into the meaning the twisty, we're talking about the twisties. would be placed into a category of no kidding, authentic mental health diagnoses, psychiatric diagnoses, like performance anxiety, okay? Now, the reason why this perspective, you know, the second perspective does have some validity is because, I mean, (laughs) that's essentially what we do with physical health conditions, right? We actually say, we go, we localize the injury, whatever it is. And we say it was this body part and this happened to this body part, which which makes it an actual diagnosis. And because it's easier, right? well understood by the general population, it kind of relieves the pressure from the athletes. Like, all right, people know I tore my ACL. People know that takes what, eight to 10 months to recover from. That's my timeline. Mm-hmm. That even though it's my own yeah. timeline and I'll take it, it'll be between me and my doctors and my team. At least I'm going to have the general population is going to be off my back. Otherwise, if we were just to say it's a lower body injury, they might be like, well, what is it? Like, are you going to going to be back? Is it a sprain? Is it a tear? And so I think you're right. Once something like performance anxiety, not a lot of people understand, like what's the treatment pathway? How long is the person going to be out? The more we talk about this stuff, the, the less, the more the stigma goes away, the more the general population will understand no what performance and anxiety is. It's a real thing. I mean, it's an actual condition. Like it, it's a condition that must be treated in many cases um, medically, um, with medical intervention, and it can get better with medical intervention and therapy, focused, targeted therapy, um, you know, over a period of time, I would say, you know, it's, it's hard to put a specific timeline, you know, but in a, in a, in a more, let's say a standard case, you know, let's say a couple of months, right. Two to three months, you know, I would say you would have, you probably made some significant strides in that time, you know, especially becoming weekly, you know, and really dedicated, 
And, uh, and then there's other, but it's not performance anxiety is one thing we see very, very often. And it's very, very common in, you know, at, at various levels among athletes, but there's also performance sort of depression, which, you know, you could say situational depression, adjustment disorders. We, we've, you know, talked at length about this condition uh, in previous episodes. And it's, it's, a, it's something like, just like major depressive disorder that can be extremely debilitating mm-hmm. yeah. you know, physically. So we're in, it's a, it's a spectrum of these things. So if you're thinking like performance anxiety, there's certainly people, tons of athletes out there that are compete through the performance anxiety as they would compete through like a minor tweak of their knee or, or a sprain um, or a contusion of some sorts, but it takes consistent management, care, treatment to be able to overcome it. And you need to address it because if you don't, eventually it could lead to panic attacks, for example, and maybe a situation like Kevin Love was open open and honest about where he had to leave a game because of a panic attack. And then that's more acute and that requires, you're gonna gonna miss some playing time with something like that. Like you mentioned before with clinical depression, Mm -hmm. uh, you could have subclinical depression that's making it more difficult for you to get out of bed and train and and perform at your highest level because you're not motivated, you're not enjoying it. Um, but you could push through it and probably be adequate, um, but you're not going to be performing at an elite level. And if you disregard it, um, next thing you know, you're, you're maybe you're, you're coping with drugs and alcohol. It, it just gets worse. It just gets worse and worse. And, and eventually, if yeah, if you have the clinical depression, that's going to take some time to recover from. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to have to sit out some games. It's like it's almost like a, a headache, you know, like a migraine. You know, the more you ignore it, the worse it gets. You know, you have to, you have to, you have to try to. You have to address it, right? And then not only address it, but then you, you if 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 it's going to become a chronic thing, you know, where you you have these kind of relapses, you know, and then periods of, rem, you know, remission where you're you're feeling okay, but then relapse again, then not only do you want to address it, but you also want to get ahead of it, you know, ahead of the next possible episode with a prevention strategy, right? So all these things you think about. You know, and and there's so many different things that can happen. You know, in high in high level performance because of the well, pressure. Yeah, let's talk about this. And this is a documentary that's coming out soon. We're going to do our own podcast on this. But the mouse at the palace. Ron Artest has been open and honest about his struggles with depression and anxiety throughout his NBA career and even before then. And obviously, he got a beer thrown into his face um, and reacted impulsively off that. But undoubtedly, the the struggles with the depression, anxiety were probably weighing on him. Result, and this isn't a diagnosis; happened many years ago, resulting in him maybe having a little um, less distress tolerance for that situation and, and reacting a little, maybe a little bit more impulsively um, and erratically by going in the stands than he would have otherwise. So that's an example of maybe if, if those things were a little bit more out in the open and destigmatized earlier on, he was receiving. Um, I think he was receiving ongoing treatment and therapy, but there wasn't the acceptance with his teammates. And um, this is, I listened to an interview recently with Jermaine O'Neal, where he was talking about how he wishes he would have been a little bit more of a better teammate to run our tests and a little bit more understanding with what he was going through. Um, mm-hmm. The malice of the palace could have been prevented, but not to put any blame on Ron Artest because a lot of us would probably have done the same thing he did in that situation. But that's For those of you who don't know what the mouse in the palace is, um, it's arguably one of the most impressive sort of like film clips of, <laughs> let's say, sports fan to 
athlete interactions. It's like the worst case scenario. You will ever see. Okay, because normally you'd never see that. You just see fans acting out and then athletes on their stage doing what they do. There's usually very little intermingling outside of like signing some autographs or whatever, right? But this was like basically an athlete, a set of couple athletes actually, mm-hmm. um, you know, just getting so pissed off that they just snapped. They went about 20 rows into the stands. And they crossed the line and they actually went in, like they went into the stands and it was just a huge brawl. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, but we'll, we'll have to do a podcast on that documentary because a lot of dynamics to talk about there. But um, at the end of the day, you're right. Like, this is something that you got to take the pressure off. You can't just all of a sudden repress it and, and then blow a casket down the line. And this is what we're hoping to do with this podcast by continuing the conversation. We're trying to end the stigma so we can treat a performance anxiety this or react to someone being out with performance anxiety, similarly to how we would react if someone's out with, with a knee injury. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because we, we know we have more clarity. We have an idea what it is. We have an idea of how, how, how it's going to improve. And that just helps everyone, not only the athlete, uh, the organization, but it also helps us as fans to have a little bit better understanding that pe- these individuals are humans at the end of the day. Right. But I wanted to talk about one more topic and then we probably should wrap up. I don't think we're going to be able to get to the NBA free agency today, but there's a huge youth movement at this the Olympic games. I wanted to ask you about this because one of my buddies posed this question to me because we had, we talked about the 12 year old Syrian girl, uh, Hen Zaza who competed in table tennis. She was the youngest at the games, but there was a 13 year old who won gold and a 13 year old who won silver in women's street skate, a 12 year old won silver in women's park skateboarding and a 13 year old sky Brown, um, won bronze in uh, women's park. Hard to believe. It really is hard to believe. The 12-year-old was Kokana Hiraki. I'll have to give her credit, credit. But these are 12 and 13-year-olds. Now, we, we've talked before about it's. we put these athletes on pedestals. In Olympic Games, we're, they're physically going on the pedestals. Um, that's where it comes from. But now we're putting like 12 and 13-year-olds on, on physical pedestals as well kind of validating them and, and cheering them on as gold medalists and silver medalists. Well, they're the greatest in the world. Exactly. They're the greatest in the world at that performance. At that age. What, what, are, you, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on how that could possibly impact an individual's psyche, maybe negatively? Oh, man. Um, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I feel like in, in some ways, we've, we've seen it many times before. You know, maybe not so much in an athletic competition, but in performance, right? Like Justin Bieber, entertainment. You know, Britney Spears is is where we've kind of seen it. I think time and time again for many generations now, where you know these people that come up as like child stars, just really seem to, I don't know, man. They don't adjust well in adulthood. Like time and time again. Um, there's just like these adjustment issues, you know, whether it be substance, you know, whether it be, you know, just sort of like you know, general mood disorders, depressions, mm-hmm. you know, bipolars, disorders, um, whether it be like sort of image kind of crises, eating disorders, um, it's all kinds of stuff, man. It, it just, it's, it's sort of well-documented enough and pervasive enough that, you know, definitely is worth, I think, more exploring for sure. Mm-hmm. 
I had this conversation separate from that, like Simone Biles, when she won her gold medal, it was just four years ago. I think she was around 18 or 19 um, or 20. So younger. And then now four years later, she's unable to kind of compete at that high level. And part of like the thought process I have is like, well, she's older now. She's more mature. She's more aware. Her brain is more mature. Sure. The frontal lobe we've talked about, which is the part of our brain is control essentially our, the control center of how we act, how we react, um, our executive functioning, making decisions, uh, our rational part of our brain doesn't develop fully until we're around 25. So if we bring it back to the twisties, maybe Simone, when she's 19 years old, kind of disregards the warning signs of having the twisties and just continues to push through it because she's not necessarily as concerned about the risks because maybe um, she's young, uh, quote unquote, young and dumb. Um, and now older. Well, not only that, not only that, but in youth, you're, you're just kind of typically reacting, right? You're just reacting to what you're told to do, right? You've performed, right? You become a, a, you know, well-oiled machine. All of that's just sort of like being integrated in your involuntary control system, right? Which is subcortical below the cortex in a completely different part of the brain than where the frontal lobe is, right? It's, it's in that part of the brain where we, we're not conscious, right? It's all like just sort of part of our involuntary control system. That's like we're, we're in the flow state. We're acting off that. We're acting off muscle memory. We're not over, we're not overthinking. Yeah. We're just, just reacting. So I think in certain situations, when it comes to the development of kind of higher level thinking that can be a detriment to certain things because then it can lead to overthinking and then maybe consciously thinking about are the risks really worth the rewards? Do I really want to be doing this anymore? Um, which could, could impact performance negatively on the other side of things with regards to what you mentioned about how kind of these entertainment entertainers that are young, these young entertainers become more prone to, to mental health concerns down the road, I think it, it is due to this kind of, they reach this high, high, this peak of society where there's center of attention, they're getting hit with dopamine left and right because it feels good to be connected, to, to feel connected with so many people, for people to, to validate you for what you think for who you are. Maybe it has more to do with your performance than who you truly are. And it becomes kind of a, how do I continue to, to get that dopamine oh, hit? How do I continue to have that validation all eyes on me? Yeah. And this doesn't happen to any, like every 12 year old who becomes famous, but it, it's happened time and time again, like Armin said, and it leads to people going to drugs to fill that dopamine void or that validation void, um, or people going to great lengths to get that attention. Now, you know, you know it's almost like, man, it's almost like, so the performance, right? There's, there's, there's you, there's you as the performer mm -hmm. right? on stage in competition. And then there's you in real life, like off stage, right? With your family, with your friends, you know, and all the people that kind of know who you really are, but they don't necessarily see you the way that you are on stage, right? It's like, you, it's kind of two different things. And mm -hmm. obviously the primary validation that you're gonna get is, is in performance. I've heard a lot of people like, you know, Beyonce, right, is, is um, well known for having, um, you know, talked publicly about her alter ego, right? The Sasha Fierce character, where when she's on stage, she completely, she just turns into a different person, 
right? She feeds off of the crowd and she just becomes like so much more confident. She just, she even talks about it. She just, she's not the same person. Off stage, she's a quiet, you know, um, you know, self-portrayed as kind of a more quiet, reserved person. You wouldn't, you would not see that in her when she's mm -hmm. performing, right? She's so legendary. Oh, yeah. And I think that happens a lot of athletes, a lot of performers in general, right? It's like they kind of, you know, just become someone else on stage. And, and I think, you know, it, it's hard to, to want to have to escape that, yeah. at, you know, at a certain point. I think it's, it's a, a matter of identity because you can see why it'd be so easy for an athlete who is a gold medalist at 12 years old to, to then become to identify themselves with, I'm a gold medal skateboarder. That's who I am because that's when I got the most validation, the most eyes on me, the most dopamine. I've ever felt. So why wouldn't I then gravitate towards that the rest of my life? That's who I am. And at some point that validation, that dope means going to go away. Like you said, mm -hmm. back when you get back mm -hmm. to your family, you're going to ride a high for a little while, but eventually like you're just going to be treated as an, as a normal kid. And that's actually a good thing, but then you're going to miss some of that, that dope means So you're going to keep trying to reach that high again. And if you can't continue to kind of perform at that same level and inevitably you're not going to be able to perform at that same level and in the second hit it is never going to be as good as the first hit so you're going to just be chasing something the rest of your life um and the idea maybe this kind of alter ego thing isn't a bad way of going about it i'd love to to interview a, a high level entertainer like beyonce to to see if that's actually been protective for her to have kind of to kind of separate those people out because it sounds like she has beyonce the performer sasha fierce and also beyonce the wife, the mother, the individual, mm -hmm. um, that, that is so much more than just a performer. You have to be happy with both, right? That's the trick. You can't be more in love with one than the other. Right. I think that's where things start to become difficult. Yeah. Right. Cause then it's like, you know, if, if, if it's obviously, you know, your, your personal life, you know, so to speak, that you're more in love with, you know, that career is not going to last long, right? Whatever yeah. that is, you're not going to last long in that. Yeah, there's On plenty the of hand, athletes who play just for a paycheck and, and that doesn't yeah. last long. Yeah, you know, and, and then it's sort of like, you know, it's gonna be harder to achieve like the highest heights, you know, in, in, in that industry. On the other hand, if, man, being that performer is what you're really most in love with, it's gonna be really difficult to make that transition when the time comes. Because that's one, that's one of the biggest, most challenging things with performance is that it's, only, it's a limited time offer. And I, I see appreciation as the key to protect yourself from that, appreciating your opportunity to perform and appreciating those highs because they're going to, you're going to feel, you're going to get hit with more dopamine and probably feel this euphoria effect, a hit that you won't get otherwise. Appreciate that, but also have deep appreciation for when you're not performing, have deep appreciation when you're at home with your family, when you're by yourself, when you're alone. And if you appreciate both yeah. the highs, the lows, and then the medium, appreciate that medium. Because so so many times I think people get caught up on having to kind of live on this roller coaster, but but show appreciation for the medium, the medium. Yeah, like uh, Eminem has this really uh, great quote um, about, you know, appreciating when your run is at its end. Um, I actually want to find this quote. Um, yeah, hold on. Because it's... Uh, it's uh it's in that track um till i collapse 
Oh, that's a great track. Yes, I'm gonna find this quote. That's the number one pump up song for me. It's mine too. That's so funny. I think we talked about this on that episode before. Oh yeah. So here's the here's the, here's the line. This is your moment, and every single minute you spend trying to hold on to it because you may never get it again. So while you're in it, try to get as much shit as you can. And when your run is over, just admit when it's at its end. That's that's the line, man. And that that's really what it is. Like you have your moment. So the first thing we we talk about mindfulness. We talk about mindfulness, right? Mindfulness is becoming aware of like when your moment has come. Like when it's time to really like like this is who you are this is who you're supposed to be you have to seize this moment you know mm -hmm. give it your all give it your best right and then gratitude is going to do one of two things it's going to keep you in the game when that truly is your passion right and it's going to help you transition from the game when it's time to let it go right when it's like i've i've had a great mm -hmm. run right what more can i do that's how you go off to the sunset yeah absolutely dude i love it eminem till i collapse it's a great track yeah all right, man. Well, that that was uh, that wraps up Olympics Tokyo 2020 Sports Lake MD style. Coming up on the agenda, we're definitely gonna have to talk about the Mouse in the Palace uh, and the NFL preview. NBA is gonna be back before we know it as well. Um, and MLB playoffs. We're gonna have to do a Uf UFC podcast at some point. We got a lot to talk about. Lots to talk about, man. A lot of conversation to be had. All right. So let's uh, end the stigma and continue the conversation. Music is like magic. There's a certain feeling you get when you reel and you speak. And people are feeling your shit. This is your moment. And every single minute you speak, trying to hold on to it, cause you may never get it again. So while you're in it, try to get as much shit as you can. And when your run is over, just admit when it's in it's in. Cause I'm at the end of my